Few acquisitions seem to vex the government more than information technology. It's a major expenditure each year at something like $100 billion government-wide. One civilian in the Air Force has demonstrated how to buy IT effectively. He's the Ops C2 Acquisition Chief at Hanscom Air Force Base. And the third in this week's series of this year's Defense Acquisition Workforce Award winners, Ryan Silvanic, joins me now. Mr. Silvanic, good to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be on with you, Tom. Tell us, first of all, generally what you do at Hanscom. What kind of IT, what do you buy, and for what purpose? I specifically work in Kessel Run, which is a division under the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center Digital Directorate. So what we do, we run a program office, essentially, with seven different programs operating under DOD 5087, so Software Acquisition Pathway. And what we do, you know, you talked IT solutions. What we do is we deliver software solutions and capabilities all centered around command and control. So I think one of the most well-known programs within the division or across the Air Force is the Air Operations Center. So think of it kind of as the hub and the brains behind how we fight the air war within the Air Force and the joint community. So the software that you acquire then is used Air Force-wide. It just happens to be located at the Kessel Run operation of Hanscom. Correct. Yeah, our software that we procure, we actually develop a lot of our software when it comes to the specifics of this effort, but we develop it and deliver it. We had a focus over uh, in the the 609th AOC, which is overseas in Qatar, but now we're shifting to align to the national defense strategy. So the PACAF region. So, but we support all over um, sites across the world. So that's what we do. Well, if there are people that are developing software in the Air Force, how does acquisition come into it? That was a creative challenge way back when, when uh, Kessel Run, you know, before it actually started and became a thing, how do we buy software and deliver software a better way? Because the waterfall process has always been very slow and arduous. And I think there's been a nice resurgence of innovation and in how do we actually upskill our warfighter and our acquisition community to deliver better software on time and when we actually need it, the speed of relevancy. So we started out as a small effort, basically, to prove out that we could do something better than what was, if you recall, or if many of the listeners recall, the AOC 10.2 program. It was a ACAT 1 special interest, $700 million, and you know never actually went anywhere, and the program was canceled. So at the time, Senator McCain had denied our request for additional funding and continued down that effort and said, go figure something else out. So we had partnered with DIUX. Uh, at the time and, you know, trying to figure out how do we build software and get it out there a better way. And it's kind of where Kessel Run was born, starting working side by side with the user, getting user feedback, quick feedback cycles, getting things out to them as quick as possible to get validation rather than, hey, we're going to come up with a 300 page document that has all these requirements. And then we think we know what we do. And then a year or two years later, it's actually fielded and Maybe it's not the right thing or it's OBE by that time. Yeah. So you're doing the scrum assembly line delivery short iteration type of DevSecOps, you might say. Yeah, it would be the latter, probably that agile development, DevSecOps. That's what we do at Kessel Run. And it's interesting because 30 years ago, the Air Force started to divest itself of what they call you know, blue shirts doing coding. And that lasted for about 20 years. Now they're back in the coding business. But there's also acquisition of software developed externally through Kessel Run. True? That is true as well. We definitely kind of run the gamut. I said we have seven programs within Kessel Run. Even within the AOC, we have programs that are out there today, the AOC 10.1 baseline. We procure a lot of our software or IT, and that is integrated together, but a lot of those things are purchased off the shelf. 
We're speaking with Ryan Silvanic. He's Ops C-2 Acquisition Chief at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts and a Defense Acquisition Workforce Award winner. And in all of this, seven projects and the buying externally and managing internally, what do you think, or you probably know, what project landed you this award from the Defense Department? Yeah, so I would say it's uh, it's all tied to our delivery of the Kessel Run all-domain operations suite. So that's a mouthful, but we call it Kratos. It's basically the software to replace the heart of what is uh, out there in the AOC today for C2 command and control. We delivered the minimum viable product, our MVP, as well as uh, the minimum viable capability release to the 609. And it actually was operationally adopted and used for day-to-day ops for the first time in 20 years. So TBMCS has been out there for two decades, and this was the first tool that's been adopted to build the air tasking order and the air control order for the Air Force. And did it simply replace logic that had been out there for 20 years, or were you able to enhance the functionality of C2 itself? I think it was a little bit of both. We're trying to aim for parity because that's what the users know, but we're also trying to make improvements as we deliver and field capability. And all of this is done in different languages than the old logic and so forth. So it, it's probably more complicated than it sounds. Yeah. So the old tools are not cloud native. They're not built for, you know, IaaS or PaaS in mind. What Kratos aims to do is utilize the, you know, the technologies that are available today. And we do that larger Kessel Run, not just for Kratos, but we try to leverage what cloud technologies are out there today. And we experience a lot of efficiency and better productivity because of that. And does any of this add up to the Air Force's contribution to the eventual JADC2 effort, which is, of course, DOD-wide? Yeah, I think there's definitely direct tie-ins from a capability perspective. Everything that uh, we're doing at the C2 level for the AOC is going to eventually tie into what we need to do for the joint space. I don't know if we have a full roadmap yet, but that's definitely where we're heading, and we have that in mind on how we build this capability out, and then we can scale and mature it over time to adopt to whatever the future holds for JADC2. And do you come at this from an acquisition background, from a business background, from a coding background? And what do you specifically do? It sounds like a lot of projects that have to be monitored and kept on track. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I know this award was for IT, more so IT management for me. I'm a business background. I've been working acquisition, you know, your traditional acquisition program manager, ever since I actually graduated college. So it's been a long time working in the acquisition career field. This is the first program though that I've been where we're working and figuring out how to do agile software development. So it's been exciting to say the least. And how do you manage the relations between the Air Force people doing work and external parties, contractors doing work? That must be a little bit of cultural and political grounds to kind of harmonize. Yeah, every organization has a little bit different culture, but for the most part, I would say what we try to do is our teams work side by side. So we might have an application team that consists of eight contractors, four military and two civilians, but you know, everyone shows up in basically the same uniform, which is like, you know, t-shirt, jeans, hoodie, and they sit down and work on a problem space together. So we try to break those walls down and those silos down, which, you know, traditionally would be, you know, you have um, contractors over here doing their thing and then bringing it together. For the most part in Kratos, they work side by side and actually are aligned around a common problem. And are people just out of curiosity, generally back in facilities working physically near one another so they can say, hey, how do I solve this? And what did you do about that? Yeah, I think for the most part, we're still in that hybrid approach where it's a lot of remote. We do have a lot of remote hires and stuff like that. So I guess the one 
good thing with COVID. It opened up people's ideas on, you know, allowing remote and virtual workforce. We were kind of set up and primed to do that because we had people that were located around the country. And then this kind of opened the aperture even more and allowed us to continue to leverage those resources and also target people. It's hard it's hard to get cleared people all in the same location with that experience or domain space willing to work here. So being remote, it actually opens up the opportunities to get more diversity, better competency, that kind of thing. And anything exciting happening in the year ahead? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of excitement. I kind of alluded to it, you know, focusing on the Pacific region, but that's one area we, we want to continue to grow and scale the software that we've delivered. So that's going to be a big challenge. So like any challenge, I think there's a lot of opportunities to excel. So definitely what we're looking forward to this year. Ryan Silvanic is Ops C2 Acquisition Chief at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts and a Defense Acquisition Workforce Award winner. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. It's great talking to you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who who works in in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's you know getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know often when he'll walk away, I'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had 
everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly 
revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.